Just Lord, we thank you that you are the God who looked out upon the community called the world. And you came and you pursued us and you came after us. And that you're a hospitable God. That when you invite us, you don't simply invite us to come in for a quick bowl of soup and then send us back out. But Lord, when you mean hospitality, you bring lonely into families. You bring widows and single mothers into church families where they are given moms and dads and grandmas and grandparents for their children. Well, we thank you that when you call people to yourself, Lord, you call and you engage with every aspect of their life. That, Lord, you do not just give us little band-aids and then send us back out to the woundings of the world. But you heal us, body and soul and spirit. You heal us relationally and emotionally. And so, gracious God, I pray that we would be that kind of church here. Lord, I pray that, that first and foremost, there are so many deep needs Lord, I mean, pastorally, it's one of the things that always almost gives me a, a, uh, some heartburn about starting something new like this is because I look around in the room, we already have so many deep needs. We are, we are already a wounded and hurting people. That's the people of God gathered together needing to be healed. And yet, Lord, you call us as the people who are in the process of being healed by you, of being made whole, of being drawn into your home. You call us then invite other people there. And so I pray that, that this new ministry and this opportunity, that, Lord, we would live into it and live out and live into it because of what we've experienced and how you have brought holistic discipleship and healing into our own lives. And that, Lord, it would be just, we would be able to speak out of our own testimony and be motivated by what you have done for us to invite other people into that. So give us compassionate hearts, hearts of pity, Hearts like our God who sees the world and longs to reach it. And may we be motivated by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bless this informational meeting? Lord, convict us even now. Though for those of us who should be there, who should be involved in this, and may you bless us. May this be a means of your kingdom coming. That Carrollton would look a little bit more like heaven because we seek to bring it to bear here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, at this time, children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. That's for our preschool-aged kids. You can head out through the double doors. And I do that, and I don't want you to get overly rambunctious, and, and um, I have some trepidation about this. I like to have you stand and, and greet one another because it gets the blood flowing. Um, you listen better. Um, perhaps, but I, I want us to remain a little more worshipful setting this morning because as we're, gonna, we're moving through this series called The Passion of the Christ, what you'll find is that there, um, after what we look at today, that when we look at the account of Jesus' trial and his arrest and his crucifixion, the adjectives go away. And by that, what I mean is this, is that what you'll find in the gospel writers for the next couple of weeks as we're going to look through the passion of Christ, is they go through the account in a rather matter-of-fact way. Boom, boom, boom. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And you get almost nothing about Jesus' emotional experience or the experiences around him is all the adjectives come to an end. In other words, what I think what we're getting there is this, is the gospel writers come to the end of themselves, that they look at the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ and the suffering of the Godhead, and they look at it and they say, it is literally indescribable. We cannot try to describe this. We can simply give you the facts. But what we are invited into today 
as we look at the garden, as we are for a brief moment, we are invited into the emotion of the Godhead, into the suffering and agony, and we're giving into the window of the suffering to come, and a small window of the agony that God will experience in seeking our redemption. And therefore, what I, I want us to stand for this, because there are some passages that you read, and they are the type of passages that make you want to go, I need to take off my shoes because I stand on holy ground. So what I want for us this morning is not to give us new learning or new information, but for us to reflect, to reflect on what Jesus has done for us, to stand on sacred ground and be invited into the inner sanctum of God's emotions as he goes towards the cross. Reflect with me as I read Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, and then Luke chapter 22, 41 through 44. Hear God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then Luke chapter 22, 41 through 44, which is a parallel account, but gives us just a few different details. and says this, and he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us real briefly. Lord, my heart is distracted, and yet this text is weighty. Lord, I, I am stuffy, and I have had a child for some reason with the sillies, and there's a fly flying around up here somewhere. And so I just confess that I'm distracted, and yet this is a text that deserves our deep and profound attention. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you push away those distractions and may we focus in on what you're doing here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is sacred ground. Do you feel it? William Barclay said of this passage, surely this is a passage that we must approach on our knees. This will be a different sermon this morning. I have no desire to give you grand illustrations or be overly illustrative or even very interesting. 
I simply want to reflect on two things I see in this text. So these are going to be reflections. First reflection is this. I want us to reflect and meditate on this. Reflect on the agony in view of the cup. The agony in view of the cup. If you read this text and you take into account and stock of the words and what they're saying here, the words ring and they, have, they linger in the air. Jesus is sorrowful. He is troubled. He is more sorrowful. A sorrow that is unto death. We see in Luke chapter 2 that he is in agony and anguish. Here is a man who is staggering under the weight of grief, bent low by the agony in his soul. The Greek word for sorrow here is the root word perilupos. Peri means surrounding. Lupos means sorrow. In other words, it is a word that is describing this, that sorrow surrounds him. It is a sorrow that is on all sides. It is closing in on him. He can feel it, and it's as if the sorrow is crushing him. Literally, it, to be in the garden, this is called the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Mount of Olives. It's a place where olives were pressed and pushed for their oil. And here is what we see. It's a great illustration of what is going on with Jesus. He is being crushed by the sorrow. It is a grief that perhaps a few of you experienced. A grief that feels like it will crush you. It will end your life. A grief that feels like it is suffocating you where you cannot get air. In which in some way, shape, or form you have ceased to exist in the life that you once have. A grief that indeed might make you dizzy might make you faint. To throw yourself on the floor, to find some place of hard ground of stability in a world that is crumbling around you. What has Jesus so aggrieved in this moment? Well, this is not the first time that Jesus has been grieved in the Gospels. Actually, if you were to look at the Gospel of John, there is actually a few pockets of time where it appears that Jesus is melancholy. In fact, one of the most clearest, and we'll look at this passage quite a few times this morning. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What has Jesus troubled is this, is it is his hour. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus will give this kind of very kind of vague re reference to his hour that is coming. And the hour, what that means is the full weight of the reality. It speaks of his death that is coming. The realities of his death on a cross and all its ugliness, the realities of what is coming upon him is being pressed upon his spirit. The moment to which he has been looking and that the things have, in all his life has built towards this. That is what he's experiencing. It isn't here. It's here that he begins to experience the crushing weight of what awaits him. What I suggest is that the closer Jesus gets to the hour, the greater the weight of the cross has, is bearing down upon his back. It is in these moments that he is now at the precipice, and all the weight of the suffering and the agony that he's about to experience is there right in front of him. Let me see if I can describe it this way from an illustration from a friend of the last couple of weeks. Some that may, may bring this home. There's a childhood school friend of mine who actually an acquaintance and then became my roommate my freshman year in college. And he lost his mother to, um, after she passed away from a two-year prolonged battle with cancer. And I was reflecting on what had that had to be like over the course of that couple years 
so surreal to have your, own, your mom's life at risk for so long, and what you know the reality is that cancer, there could be the bad news one day when there's nothing else that you can, they can do for her, but there's kind of a sense in which, yes, it's a reality there, but you don't fully embrace it until there's someday, at some point in the process, the weightiness of the reality of what is coming hits home. It could be the day in which they go out of, they, they're removed from remission and then there's a new onset of cancer or it's found that it's spread to a new place. Or it could be that the day in which hospice is called in or the day that, you, that his mother could no longer function, do something that she's always been able to do. It could be the time in which he got that phone call that said, hey, you need to get over here. It's not going to be much longer. And which is a moment in time in which the death has not occurred and all of its suffering has not been brought to bear, but there is a sense of it, you're already beginning to enter into that experience. You're not there yet, but the experience of the loss that is coming is beginning to hit you. And that is what I think Jesus is experiencing here in the garden. And yet, here is what has confounded scholars as they've looked at this. And we must, I say this with the utmost respect for Jesus, but frankly, Jesus is not handling his upcoming death very well. He's, we might put it, falling apart emotionally. You see, throughout the history of Christianity, there has been many people who have faced their martyrdom, have faced their deaths with what appears to be much greater emotional and stability and courage than Jesus does here. Polycarp, who was a great disciple of John, when he's going to be burned at the stake, he said, yeah, bring it on. In fact, he was so courageous as he went to the stake, they were getting ready to tie him to the stake and to put the flames around him. He said, no need to tie me. I'm going nowhere. Which in the face of death, there is great courage. Think about even there's non-believers who have faced death with far greater courage than this. Plato, for example, gives the account of Socrates facing his own death. Here's how Plato describes Socrates' death. If you remember, Socrates is put to death. He's supposed to drink a chalice of hemlock. It says this, he, Socrates took his cup of hemlock without trembling or change of expression. He raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. When his friends who were gathered around burst into tears, he rebuked them for their behavior and urged them, keep quiet and be brave. Plato concludes that Socrates died without fear, sorrow, or protest. We have examples of it in the Bible too. Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts, the first Christian martyr, he stands up before the angry crowd who are going to stone him to death and he stands up before them with great courage. He faces his death and he asks God the Father to forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and then he goes to sleep. Is Stephen greater than his master? And is Socrates braver than Jesus? See, yes, here's the thing, though. Jesus is looking into his death, but to peer into his death is not merely to look into physical death. Here's what one pastor, if one pastor put it in comparing Jesus to Socrates. He said this, Socrates drank a cup of hemlock, but the cup from which Jesus drank was filled with a far different poison. You see, what Jesus is peering into in the garden is not just his physical death. He is looking and peering into nothing less than what is his personal and literal hell. It says the cup. What does he want in this moment of grief? What is he longing to be taken from him? It's the cup. 
Now, what does that mean? The cup, he asked for the cup to be removed from them. The cup is a biblical image that is used particularly throughout the Old Testament, representing God's wrath. And the wrath of God for sin troubled Jesus when he asked that the cup might be taken from him. All of God's wrath, it says, is going to be poured out. The people, those who are sinners, are going to drink of it. Psalm 75, verse 8, I'll just give you one illustration, an example from the Old Testament. It says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. They will drink of the wrath of God. Jesus is going to drink of all of God's anger. Think about all the things that God is angry about in this world. And Jesus is going to drink the wrath that God wants to incur upon these things. All the rape in this world, God's anger at what is going on. All the sin in individuals' lives, the injustice in this world, genocides, God's seething anger at those things, it's going to be poured out on Jesus. And inherent to receiving God's wrath comes with it separation from God the Father. And this is where we get, begin to get to the heart of God's, or Jesus' grief here and the Father's grief. Because for all of eternity, the Father and the Son have lived in utter intimacy. There's been nothing ever wrong in the relationship. They have been bonded together. We even see it throughout the life of Jesus. That whenever the Father shows up and speaks of the Son, he says, this is my beloved Son, and I am crazy about him. And Jesus says, I'm crazy about the Father. He says the same thing again at the transfiguration. What happens in the garden is that Jesus gets on his knees and he cries out. And he says, here I am, your beloved son. And what he gets instead is not here, yes, you are my beloved son. Instead he gets, depart from me for you are accursed. Just think about, just think about the, the grief that comes with such a depth of relationship. Think about this. I read an article a couple of weeks back about a young couple who have, and some of you have experienced this. A young couple that, in which the, the mother had a miscarriage a couple, just a couple weeks before she was due to give birth. So two weeks later, she gives birth to a stillborn child. And it's this couple's reflection in those moments when they held their stillborn child in their arms and the, the grief and the, the longing to be close to the body of their child before it is taken away. And they never, they never had but a, even a moment of that child living outside the womb. And yet what we see here is for all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son have lived in an intimate embrace with one another. And now in the wrath that Jesus is about to drink, they're going to be pulled apart from each other. Jesus drinks of the wrath of God so that you and I don't. But in the face, the face of that wrath, Jesus' knees buckle. See, he's not facing just mere death. He is facing separation from God. In fact, the Apostles' Creed says this, that he descended into hell. What is hell? Hell is nothing short than physical and spiritual separation from God. That's what hell is. And so Jesus is looking right into the depths of the hell that he is about to face. And so he cries out, would you spare me from this cup? He asked for the cup to, to go away from him. Now, now, now think about this for just a moment. He has said his whole life, I am going to die. This is why he came. He is known. 
And yet here we see the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, asking God the Father to have the cup taken from him. This is not just some literary device. He's literally asking. Jesus is asking not to have to go through this agony. And let me tell you this, he had to ask. He had to ask. It was only right that he would ask to have this taken from him for the simple reason that it is altogether inappropriate for the Son of God to desire to be separated from his Father from even one millisecond. To have the un- he longs to have the unclouded smile of his Father in heaven, and so he cannot bring himself to desire to be in one moment separated from God the Father. See, Jesus' whole life has been built upon pleasing the Father and being close to the Father and doing exactly all the Father asks him to do. John 5, verses 19 says this, Truly I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accords, but only what he sees the Father doing. He's mimicking the Father. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He loves, he loves the Father's smile. John 17 says, this is how he has always lived. He has always lived like this. Since before the world began, he, the three members of the Trinity love to give glory to one another, love to see the other members of the Trinity enjoy. Jesus is the only one of whom it can be said that he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Literally, he says to the Samaritan woman, I have a food. Actually, he says it to his disciples, I have a food of which you do not know. Literally, Jesus' heart blood, the thing that feeds his soul and his life, is doing the will of the Father. In holy humanity, he cannot willingly ask to be departed from the Father's presence. So he must ask to be spared. He cannot desire to be separated from his Father. And But what does he say? He says, if it be possible, if it be possible, nevertheless, not my will be, but your will be done. If it be possible, the Son must ask to be spared. But here's the thing, the Father must not spare him. If it is possible, Jesus says to God the Father, of whom all things are possible, yet the Father will not and must not spare him. Why? And here we begin to get into very deep theological holy ground, the summit of all theological reflection. We saw it already in John chapter 12, verse 27. It says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. What I want you to see is this, is from before eternity began and the whole reason Jesus was sent to this earth is there is agreement between God the Father and God the Son. They have pledged to one another that we will redeem a people for ourselves and we will redeem this world and they've agreed as to how they're going to go about that. So Jesus has pledged to go to the cross and the Father has pledged to not spare him. He has pledged to turn his face away. And so when the son in this moment pleads to have this cup taken from them, the father, the father in relation to their agreement saying, this is what we have decided to do, says, I cannot spare you of this. I've given you my pledge. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are working together. They're literally wrestling with one another for our salvation. And in this moment, in this passage, we get to hear the wrestling. And Jesus says, not my will be done, but thy will. Now we, we, we hear that and we hear the, the, the call of Jesus and how submissive he is to the Father's will. And we'll get to that in just a minute, but I want you to hear the other side of it. Not my will, but yours be done, which inherently means this. It is the Father's will. It is the Father's will 
to not spare his son. It is the father's will to push him away. It actually says this in Isaiah 53.10. So it is, it is the will of the Lord to crush him. Can you imagine this? Again, we're, we're trying to reflect on what the emotional state, what's going on in the, the, the Trinitarian God. The son asks, he, not once, not twice, he is pleading with the father to take this cup from him. Begging. And the father turns his face away. We are getting a window here of not just the grief and the sorrow of the son, but the grief and the sorrow of the father himself. If I can just bring this into human terms. In my own life, as I was reflecting this this week, if my son, I have a beautiful son, my son, my Cademan, if I, I love him more than life itself. My son, if I could, if I could get into the depths of his hole and the deepest parts of his psyche so that he would know deep down the core of his being that I love him. That's the greatest longing of my life. If my son were to, to undergo some horrific surgery or some terrible pain and he were to look up at me and say, Daddy, make it stop. It would take every person in the, in the hospital to hold me back to trying to bring healing and care to my son. And here the son of God is pleading to his father, spare me. And the father says, I will turn my face from you. And you, being an evil father, desire good things for your son. How much more the father in heaven desires good things for his son. And yet, it was the Father's will to crush him. To crush him, not to spare him. And here's what that means. As we, as we in the next couple of weeks, center in on the cross, as we look at the passion of Jesus Christ, and it is going to be given, we're going to talk about it in theological terms, in historical terms, we're going to give the facts of the, the death of Jesus Christ, and the trial of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want you to remember this about that day, some 2,000 years ago at 3 p.m., that ultimately, it was not ultimately a historical event, though it was a historical event. And what happened on that day was not simply the, the fulfillment of the intricate designs of the Old Testament prophecies coming to bear on that day. Nor is it simply the cross being seen in all of its, being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. No, nor is it even geographical that it's this place outside of Jerusalem. It is, or even this moment in history. But what we are looking at in the cross is deeply personal. It is the rending of the Father and the Son and the bond of the Spirit. That's what we look at in the passion of Christ. It was the will of the Lord to crush him despite the fact that he asked to be spared. Ponder anew the agony of both the father and the son. Reflection number two. Reflect on the agony of the cup, but also as we look at this text, we must reflect on the victory in view of the temptation. What is going on here in this text is nothing less than temptation. It is temptation in a garden. That should put some flags up. Bear with me here because we have some biblical steps to take. I read the parallel account in chapter, Luke, chapter 22 of Luke because there are a couple details there that are not found in both the Matthew and the Mark account. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of those details in the midst of that account 
in the midst of this three-part prayer of Jesus. It says that Jesus receives care from an angel. Now, whenever we see angels in the Bible, it weirds us out. But because there's actually, there's so few and far between, and particularly in the life of Jesus, it should tip us off to something. The last time we see Jesus strengthened by an angel is during when? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes out to the wilderness for 40 days, and he has no food and no water. He fasts, and then at the end of that 40 days, in the, in the place of weakness, the Satan comes and tempts him, and yet Jesus is victorious. And particularly what, G, what Satan comes to tempt Jesus with is to find a crown without a cross, to push him away. Get glory, Jesus, without a cross. Get glory without doing the will of the Father. Jesus is faithful, though. But then after the temptation, it says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. It said, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I welcome you to the opportune time. This is the opportune time, and what is the temptation? What is the temptation of the evil one coming to Jesus in this moment of unbelievable physical weakness, of deep grief and sorrow to come and whisper into his ears? What is it? I think for the, the most faithful thing we can say from the text is this, that he comes and whisper in Jesus' ears, do not do the will of the Father. Don't do it. Don't do it. The Father's will, a will that Jesus has now pleaded to be relieved from, and the Father has said no. He has turned his face from him. He has said, no, this is the will, and we're going to carry this out. It is that will to go to the cross, and the temptation is to flee from the will of the Father by fleeing from the cross. And there is a great history of preachers and artists speculating on what exactly it is that the evil one might have whispered in Jesus' ear. Charles Spurgeon has a whole sermon where he goes into all these different whispers that Satan would have whispered in Jesus' ear. If you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ, one of the most haunting scenes of the whole movie, it is bone-chilling to watch it. It's the scene where Satan comes and slithers and whispers into Jesus' ear in this scene in the garden, and he speaks to him. It's like, are you really the son of God? Does the Father really love you? And I think that may be exactly something along those lines that he's repeating here. I think he also, he could be repeating the same things he whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what is that? What is that? Did the Father really say? The Father who says that he loves you, would he really send you to a cross? Don't you want something more? There's a, there's a temptation that is clearly going on. And then just think about the context of the temptation. Not only is Jesus physically weak here, but he's not getting a whole lot of support. See, not only does Jesus have the deep agony, not only does Jesus have the temptations of the evil one in his ear, but in the geographic and textual proximity is on full display is the stupidity, the seemingly utter worthlessness of those for whom he is going to die. Here, the reflections ponder upon the ridiculous. The scene is cruelly and comically a juxtaposition. Jesus is looking into a personal hell, and there a stone's throw away, it says, in the garden, are the people for whom he is doing it, Peter, James, and John, and what are they doing? They're scratching themselves, they're yawning, picking their teeth and smacking their lips. A more derisive, worthy confederacy of dunces the world has never delivered. With an eye shot for who he will die. 
The juxtaposition between Jesus and his disciples who said all that very night, we will never leave you or forsake you. We can't even stay up with you. One pastor put it this way. He says, in the third time Jesus comes to them, right, the first two times he challenges them, says, hey, pray because there's temptation coming for you. The third time he simply just says, go on sleeping. It's the one command the church has faithfully carried out for the last 2,000 years. And it is this group that Jesus dies for. They are not making it easy. And understand this. Jesus has a choice here. He could have pushed aside, he could have avoided the cup. He says so. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 and 53, here in the next few verses, Peter's gonna come and chop off some guy's ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? If he really demanded, I'm out. I'm out. This is a bad idea. Jesus could have, he had the power, he had the right, he had the armies at his disposal. He could have called down angels to destroy all those who would come and put him to death. But instead, he simply called for one angel. One angel, come and nourish me for the work that is ahead of me. The father could have said, said we aren't doing this. We aren't doing this. This is too grievous for me. We'll wipe them out and we'll start over. The son could have said to the father, nope, I'm out. This this separation from you, it's not right, it's not good, I won't go through with it. But they did not. Why not? Why not? Because there was no other way for God's just and loving demands to be met and for sinners to be saved and made right with God. He could have bailed, but if he wants us to be made right with him, then this is the way it has to be. In other words, Jesus looks into the abyss of hell and he says, is there another way? That's what he's asking. If it be possible, find another way for them to be redeemed. And he and the Father both conclude, as they have already concluded from eternity past, that there is no other way for us to receive glory and for us to save them. Understand this, about this truth. There's a stat out there. It's actually even far worse than this, but the one one I found most recently is this. 65% of people who profess to be Christians believe that you can be made right with God through other religions that there are other ways to God. Now, here's what I want you to understand about that. That is not merely some, that we, this is not merely an academic theological debate whether there's one way to God. That is, it is so egregious to say that there is more one way to God. It is egregious, not egregious, simply because it is theologically wrong, but because such a position scandalizes the character of the father who would say his child is pleading to be relieved from this. And he says, no, there's other ways, but this is how I'm choosing to go about this. And makes the son look like a fool that there's other ways to go about this. And he says, no, I'm going to go and carry He's, he's a, a masochistic fool. That's who he is. And, then he's, and they would be spitting upon the sacrifice of Jesus as one of the dumbest acts in human history. So to say that there's more, one way to, one, more than one way to God and there's more than one way than through Jesus is actually to say something that is utterly egregious, that is personally offensive to God. This denigrates the sacrifice of Jesus. He asks, is there other, another way? And there is no other way. And so Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done. 
Not my will, but thy will be done. And Jesus resolves. He sets his face resolutely, unflinchingly from this point to the cross. John, he says it in John 18, chapter 10 and 11. He actually, you should see his resolution even before his disciples. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Jesus is resolved in prayer to drink the cup. Peter wants to keep Jesus from having to drink the cup, and Jesus says, put it away. I must and I will drink the cup of God's wrath. Why the flinty resolve in Jesus? And here I want us to go a little bit deeper than simply he does this for us, because he does do this for us, as is, is, is utterly beautiful as that is. But as profound and deeply moving as that truth is that Jesus would do this for us, there is something actually going on the deeper in his relationship with God the Father. It says this, once again, John 12, verses 27, but we'll also read verse 28 this time as well. Now is, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, to, Father, glorify your name. Jesus said, I am troubled about the hour, but I have come to do the Father's will and to give glory to God the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross because I am passionate about the glory of God the Father. At the cross, what we see there is we see the beauty of all the characteristics, all the attributes of our God on full display. It is a thing that brings glory to God. That God will go to these links to save worthless sinners and yet bring them to himself. And it shows the love and the justice and the mercy and the goodness and the compassionate nature of this God. It is the shining jewel, the great light that shines upon God's great characteristics. And so Jesus takes the cup. He resists the temptation. And get this, he does so with his eyes wide open. That's why there's grief. That's why he satters, staggers. He knows he's walking into hell, and he did it anyways. And here I want you to see there is a great reversal going on here. There is a great victory that's going on in the garden. See, there's a reversal in the garden of Gethsemane of what happened in the first garden. Let me just give you the back and forth, the redemption that Jesus is bringing to bear. You remember there was a first garden when Adam and Eve rejected the will of the Father. In the first garden, the father says, do my will, and you'll have me in all my blessings. In the second garden, the father says, do my will, and you'll lose me and be accursed. In the first garden, Adam and Eve fought not at all. They didn't resist the temptation seemingly at all. Eve gave in to the longings of body over the longings to do the will of God. In the second garden, though, Jesus fought body and soul. He agonized over this until his body sweated drops of blood. So to live all under the will of God. In the first garden, Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the evil one. In the second garden, Jesus rejects the voice of the evil one. In the first garden, Adam and Eve looked to the unknown benefits of the tree and chose it. They didn't know what goodness was going to come from the tree. But yet they chose the unknown and rejected the God, the perfect God that they knew. But in the second garden, Jesus knowingly chooses the depths of hell so that we might be restored to God the Father himself. In the first garden, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve choose their way and plunged all creation into a curse. In the second garden, Jesus chooses the will of the Father and brings many into blessings of God. The victory of God in Christ Jesus, who resists where we have simply chosen to fall asleep. 
This is what Jesus has done. He is reversing what Adam and Eve did. This is why Romans and Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the second Adam. What Adam could not do, Jesus did. The deck was stacked for Adam to resist temptation. God had given him everything and he couldn't resist. The deck is stacked against Jesus and yet he resists. So let me end with this, just a little bit of a brief reflection of application for us this morning from these two insights from the text. I want to finish just this brief application reflecting on temptation for us. You see, we know what is the center of this text is Jesus' grief and sorrow before God in prayer, right? Three times he goes off to pray. And whenever something is repeated three times in a text, it's important. But you know what? There's also something else that is repeated three times here. It is Jesus going to his disciples and saying, hey, you should pray so that you might resist temptation. Now, what's the temptation that they need to get ready to resist? That things are about to go badly, All the things that you've been looking forward to in me, all the things that you're hoping for, that you've been giving the last three years of life for, it's all about to get shattered. I'm about to get arrested. Things are going to begin to be hard. And so the question is, and the thing that they're supposed to prepare themselves for, is in the midst of hardship, will you stand up and do the will of God in the midst of temptation? Will you do it? Here's the application for us, for you and me. Will you do the will of God when things get hard? When the will of God means suffering or loss or hardship, will you remain faithful to him even when it means suffering? When his will and his way means that you take up a cross and you die, are you willing to follow him? We are called to the will of God no matter how difficult and how great and deep the sorrow. Jesus knows the will of God. For for some reason, that seems to be the question we're always asking. What's the will of God? I actually think we have a far less problem with that. Our problem is not knowing the will of God. Our problem is doing the will of God because we don't want to. Because it is, let's be frank, it is hard. See, some people say the safest place for you to be is in the will of God. Well, you know what? Jesus is doing the will of God and it ends up on a cross. Doing the will of God may put you in places where you will suffer and suffer more than you ever thought possible. It is not safe to do the will of God. It might lead to suffering. And here's what I want you to see. In love, God may hand, he hands every one of us at some point in our life, some cross, some cross that says, take this up. And there are moments in trials in life that we think, I cannot survive this. I cannot do this. The call in following Jesus, the call in laying down our lives is this. Take this. What we want to say is, take this from me. But what he calls us to do is say, I, will take the, I don't want this cross, God. Spare me of this, but I will take it up if you ask me to. I'll betray myself rather than disobey you. I'll obey you. I will drink the cup. I will take up a cross, even if it means something super painful in my life, which means this. The will of God might mean you have to submit your sexual desires to him. No matter how much it feels like they are ripping your insides apart because you cannot live them out. It is hard to submit the realities of singleness. God's will and God's way in your life. It's hard to stay in a marriage that feels like death. It's hard. The, The Bible is so realistic. 
It is painful and anguishing to trust God in the midst of these things. It is hard to trust God when you have wayward children and you can't understand why this is the will of God in their life. It is hard. It is hard to join Job when his wife says, curse God and die. It's hard when the Lord, you have to go to him and say, Lord willing, listen, if you, if you want another miscarriage in my life, then I will embrace another miscarriage and I will trust in you in the midst of it. And I don't understand it. And I don't understand why my father is gone at my age. And I don't understand by the, the relationship, the, the one who I thought well, I was going to commit my life to suddenly up and left. I don't get it. I don't know how to trust you in this moment. I'm struggling. This is hard. Because in those moments, the temptation is going to be this. Well, you ask this question, is God really good? The evil one will walk with you in those moments and he will whisper in your ears in the midst of suffering and temptation and the temptation will be this, he can't be good. He can't be trustworthy. What would enable us to follow Jesus and embrace the hardship and the suffering? It's this truth. It's the exact opposite of what the devil will seek to convince you of and it's this, that God is good and he is for you. We ask, that has been the question since the garden. Is God good and is God for me? And Paul, in reflecting upon the garden and the cross, and reflecting upon the passion of God in Christ Jesus, and reflecting upon the theological heights of what has been achieved and done in Jesus Christ, he says, cast your eyes on this conclusion. Here's what he says in Romans 8, chapter 30, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son... He who turned his face away when his son screamed out to be spared. He who would not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Or you could put it in the terms of Jesus' perspective. He did not spare himself, but he gave himself up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? If we would just believe that. The hard work of the Christian life, the hard work of preparing yourself for temptation in prayer is to cling to these truths, to say, God, I, this, you seem like you're torturing me right now, but I will cling to this. I will cling to Romans 8.32. I don't understand this, but I will cling to it. But our blight from the very beginning, you know, the lie that was told to us in the garden and that we have longed to believe ever since then is that God is not really for you. That God is not really good. And this has been the core lie that the evil one brought to Adam and Eve. And it's the core lie that so many of you are asking yourself in the midst of temptation, in the midst of hardship and suffering, calling into question God's love for you, calling into question if God is for you. It was the lie in one garden about one tree. In the embracing of that lie, it could only be undone by one rejecting the lie in the garden and embracing the tree of the cross to show you once and for all that God is for you, that he would give up his son, that Jesus, the son of God, would endure death in hell itself to show you the love of God so that no matter what you go through, you can know he loves you. So the call, have faith. Have faith. Faith is trust in the character of God in the face of an uncertain and clouded future. Have faith. No, Romans 8 keeps going on. No opposition can withstand him because he is God. No condemnation in your life can, can, can overwrite 
the words of God that says you are free and approved of. Nothing can thwart his good, gracious, sovereign purposes so that those who love him, for those who love him, because he is God and he has proven it. Nothing, nothing are you persuaded of that. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you persuaded? If you are, if you are, then you'll be stored at the core of your being. And it will, these kind of reflections will cause you to want to sing and worship. In the midst of temptation. In the midst of suffering. I love the line in the hymn. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. What's the next line? Then sings my soul. Can you not trust this God? Is he not trustworthy? Can you not place your hands on the one who is willing to give up his son to win you back? Man, that truth will help you endure in all sorts of sorrows and temptations. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this weighty glimpse into the conversation amongst the members of the Trinity. That you would give us an inkling of your sorrow. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who ponder and reflect, that we don't move on too quickly but we would allow the truths and the weight of what is stated here to wash over us. So I pray that you would help certain people in this room, in particular those who are in the midst of suffering, that, Lord, they would see your suffering on their behalf. And as Ed pointed out earlier and from Hebrews chapter 4, that he has endured all suffering, all temptation, so that he can pray for us, that he can sympathize with us, so that he can walk through our sufferings with us. And so that he can whisper in our ear, above the whispers of the evil one, you are loved, and I am for you. And you can trust me. And you may not see it now, but this is for your good and for my glory. Lord, I pray that we would not run too quickly from those meditations, but we would sit there and bask in it so that we might come to trust you at a more deep level, a more intimate and sweet level, so we may have joy, not because of, but in the midst of the sorrows and sufferings and temptations you brought into our life. We pray all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.